Stop being inspired. Everybody can be inspired. You can read a thousand books. Go do some shit. Do what you're amazing at. You are inspiration. You are magic. You can do this shit, so you have to. Hi, it's Holly Ransom here. Welcome one and all to Coffee Pods, Fuel Your Difference, a podcast for the change makers and the game changers. This podcast is built around a simple hypothesis. How long does it take to learn from someone's lifetime of experience? Coffee. So in the time it takes us to share a cup of coffee with our guests or for you to enjoy one as you listen along, we're going to tap into the lifetime of experience of some truly remarkable people who've driven significant change. I'm a big believer that success leaves clues. And be it putting an audacious idea into action, shifting a team culture, or even a country's for that matter, or using their influence to drive progress, all our guests have powerful insights, pragmatic tips, and passionate calls to action that can help each of us to fuel the positive difference we're all working to create in our lives, organizations, and communities. Coffee Potters, I'm fired up to introduce you to this week's guest. I left this conversation feeling 10 feet tall. I was so inspired and full of energy by virtue of the sheer passion that this individual emits when they talk about what they do and the impact they're looking to create in the world. I'm talking about Mark Brand. Mark is a restaurateur and social entrepreneur. In fact, he's one of North America's foremost social entrepreneurs. He runs a stack of businesses, social enterprises, and charities, and he's intentionally chose to start them in the poorest postcode in America, which is also the largest drug market in North America. So he works in really impoverished, struggling, and disjointed communities, and the impact he's had will blow your mind. Here's just a quick snapshot. When Mark took over Save On Meats, Vancouver Butcher and Diner, he created a token program, an alternative currency to feed those in need without a cash exchange. Since then, he's fed over 100,000 people. Mark's also a Stanford Fellow, Professor of Innovation at USC, the Executive Chef for Pope Francis's Laudato Sea Challenge, and an advisor to corporations working to make real change. Get ready to get fired up. Here's Mark Brand. Mark Brand, I'm so thrilled to have you on Coffee Pods. Thank you so much for making the time in amongst this creative madness that is C2 to, to be here with us. Well, it's at the stage. We just walked in this massive building. It's like 55,000 square feet. And then we walked into a pop-up florist, yep. which is an actual florist with two floral attendees outside that then walked us to what should be the flower fridge and popped it open. And it's like a 1920s Chicago speakeasy with an absinthe dispenser on the table. Yeah, this is without question the most unique place I've ever done a podcast. Now, listen, reading about you, I just think it's phenomenal. You've got, am I right, 11 businesses now? So used to have 11, um, nine different brick and mortars, two and a half, almost three years ago, pivoted. And now I have five. Yep. The essential measuring stick for that was, can these do social justice work in the world if there was no way they could, or the person who was involved with me in that business didn't want to do the work that I was doing, which is totally fair. Um, We closed or sold. So I closed or sold six in a two-year process, which I would never, ever recommend to anybody. I can't even imagine how long that would have been. That's huge. Before we get to the here and now though, let's go back to the start. Mm -hmm. Where did your passion for food come from? And was there was there a moment you can distill kind of the ignition of your social conscience down to? Where did that passion for community come from as well? The food stuff comes directly from my family and my mom's side of the family. So they're all uh, were worked in service. They were bartenders. They were chefs. They were servers. They were like everything in that um, because they're from Nova Scotia, from Halifax. So there's only a couple of industries there. One was fishing. One was service. We have the most bars per capita wow. on the planet. 
So you literally step out and hit another one. Um, so there's always need for bartenders and lots of heavy drinkers. So my mom and her family grew up super poor. Uh, my grandfather passed early. Uh, they were living with aunts and uncles. And my mom got her first job at 12, literally. Uh, and so the work ethic and the food portion went together. So for me, what was resonant is if you work your ass off, you get an amazing meal. And my aunt was one of my mentors. Um, she passed last year. Amazing woman. And she could make incredible food out of nothing. And so I spent time with her in the kitchens whenever we would have Christmas or any of those things with the family and just soak it all in. And then I got my first job, like the coveted job at the pizza store in the mall. So I was the dough maker. Yo, I made it. Like that was it. I'm on the front page. Essentially, (laughs) I was 14 years old. Oh, yeah. Making pizza dough. And all of the kids I knew, this was our pizza spot that we would hang out to the mall almost closed and buy the dollar slices at the end because we didn't have any money. And the guys would always give us an extra and look after us. They became like family to me. It was a Lebanese family. They taught me the wonders of baking. And once I learned that, I was like, I'm essentially a magician. I can make this powder and this water into pizza. So I'm a genius. You're welcome. Uh, and as I learned that, I was like, okay, anything's possible. You know, your, your worldview starts to get really big, really quick. Because outside of that, if you're living in poor areas, which I was, you're eating out of boxes or cans. And that's just the norm. Everything's full of nitrates, everything's full of preservatives, everybody's obese, everybody's getting diabetes. It's like a really messed up thing. And you start to notice that the people who have more affluence and have more money are healthier and thinner and are brighter and have more energy. And so I started to connect those dots real early. It was like, this is the way, obviously, fuel goes in the car, car operates better, car operates longer. Um, So my passion came there. And then as far as the give back portion, my entire family. So my aunt Diane, again, uh, we would walk down the street and she would see a kitten on the side of the road. Like this isn't an embellishment or an analogy. This is real or a bird. And she'd be like, all right, well, that's coming home with us. (laughs) And she wasn't a crazy cat lady. She just couldn't deal with suffering of any kind. So she was an empath. And my whole family on that side are empaths. And so I would watch her go into her pocket, knowing that she didn't have any money and give people on the street her last couple of dollars, but she didn't just give them money. She spent time with them Mm. and she knew everybody in the city and they knew her as the kind lady that always had a cat. Right. And so that stuck with me. I also struggled uh, in my teen years. I was a bad kid and uh, I fought with my mom all the time and my mom suffered uh, from a lot of different issues. And so it was just her and my, my dad was away. Uh, predominantly. And so I uh, got thrown out of the house a lot. And after you burn a lot of bridges of being thrown out of the house, you don't have any more couches to sleep on. And so I started to figure out how I could stay in a Walmart for 24 hours, or I could stay at McDonald's for 24 hours. And I spent a couple of nights outside. And as you grow older, there's a lot of shame that's in that, right? As a kid, you're like, nobody's going to know this. And my mom's fine. She's not crazy. And I'm fine. And I'm not doing anything bad. So you hide all of that. And I didn't realize that I'd been suppressing it for years and years and years. So add those two things together. And there was something bubbling me my whole life that was, I don't want anybody to ever have to face that. I always want someone to have a place or a home. And I realized much later in life that I never felt like I had a home. I never felt like I had safety, even though I definitely did. Um, because of circumstance, I, I didn't. And, and mentally, if you feel like you don't have something, you don't have something. That's incredible. And I think it's so, it makes so much sense knowing what you do now to hear that backstory and the way that that's imbued every part of your business, that that alignment is, is so, so clear. And I wanted to ask you, you know, what was the journey from you, you were cooking in restaurants and, and I know you did that right around the world, including in Melbourne, taking that step 
doing your own thing for the first time and intentionally at that point choosing to do it differently as you've done throughout your career. Talk to us about that moment. Not only that I'm going to step out, I'm going to have a crack myself, but I'm also going to totally flip the model because it it doesn't have to be like that. I did a bunch of cooking, but I did a lot of bartending to pay the bills and then became a DJ. And so as those things evolved, I was like, I want to understand how to be in service the best I can and make the most money out of it so I can do more. And so that's where that career led me to in Melbourne. And I got to meet incredible people and create community. And when you create community, when you're a part of creating something, that's infectious for you. It's an addiction because you start to realize that with enough grind and enough effort and enough truth, you can create entire scenes of people that feel like they have home. So you're creating homes for folks. And for us, it was like partially Australian hip hop, partially the guys who weren't cool enough to be the main stage DJs, but who were way more musically talented. We became like this group of misfits and we ran some of the most successful nights in Melbourne. It was super fun. And are like, this is unconventional way to go about this. But there's a lot more people that feel like they don't belong than people that feel like they do belong. Isn't that the truth? So if you're designing for the people who feel like they don't belong, like all of us have some sort of syndrome that way, imposter syndrome, we don't feel like we're enough. That's everybody. Instead of for the cool kids, you get a bigger market. And that's just math. And so we always looked at things that way. Um, And Vis-a-Viz became a different kind of cool kid group. Mm. And so I love that. Like I just loved creating culture and knew that I would always have my own brick and mortar at some point. Um, I got diagnosed with polycystic kidney disease when I was in Melbourne. And unfortunately, because of Australian laws, I had a beautiful home. I was like, everything in my life was amazing. I was playing festivals. I like hit the top of my game. I was working with a bunch of different MCs. I was super excited. And the Australian government said, you can do one of two things. You can take care of your healthcare for the rest of your life, or you can beat it. And I knew that there was no way, regardless of how much money I made, I'm not Tiesto. I'm not going (laughs) to have enough cash to look after a transplant or anything else like that, right? And I didn't want to play with my future like that. So I essentially had to literally burn my life down and move back to Canada. Wow. And I was devastated. All of my best friends, you know, I was starting to see one of my closest friends. They were starting to see real critical acclaim. Their group called the Hilltop Hoods. Matt Lambert suffers one of my best mates. And I wanted to be around for all of their success because we worked so hard at all of this stuff, right? Uh, And so that was stripped away. My community I built was stripped away. Um, the longevity of my life now had like a timeline on it. Everybody does, but mine feel, felt like it was more aggressive. And it just put me in this really terrible headspace. And so I moved back to Canada. But what I actually did was looked at the entire country and said, I'm not going to live in the East Coast because the opportunities aren't there. So I needed to find a city that was much more agreeable to developing. And Vancouver was one of those cities. They were starting to do some pretty cool shit. They were on the sort of cusp of looking at different things. The conservative hangover was wearing off. And I arrived in Vancouver and I went to the downtown east side of Vancouver where I operate now and felt super in love with it. And visually, you're dealing with the largest open air drug market in North America. So people are shooting heroin in their eyeballs in front of you. People are smoking crack left, right and center, methamphetamines. But people are like super, aside from being high, other folks are just looking after each other. It's crazy. Like it looks like bedlam. Which is not where most people would choose to start their business, can I say. And I, I gather as well, it's one of the lower socioeconomic or the poorest postcode in Canada. Poorest postal code in Canada. Yeah. Right. So you're, you're dealing with almost everybody's on welfare if they have the mental capacity to actually even get signed up. And something resonated super deep in me there. I was like, this is a place you're supposed to be. And I'd never felt like that before in my life. 
I'd always felt like an outsider. I always felt like I wasn't at home. For some reason, I felt like I was at home and I couldn't reconcile it. Mm. I was like, damn, dude, are you losing your mind? Like, why would this be a place for you? Why would this be it? And so I went to work for another company. I worked for them for two and a half years. It was an incredible ride. I was uh, Vancouver's first ever bartender of the year, which was a cool award. Thank you. And I mean, thank Australia. Let's be very (laughs) real. And then thank Australia via milk and honey in London. Like, let's follow the trajectory of the real cocktail scene, right? So I like knew it like the back of my hand, like a playbook. It was like, oh, here's how we serve food with cocktails. And this is how you do accoutrement that are amazing. And I used all those chops from Australia and all of my new flavor profiles. I mean, I hadn't eaten cilantro and Thai chilies and white vinegar before when I was in Canada. That's not a thing that we do. And so all these flavor profiles, I brought them back, incorporated them into the bar program, had brilliant people working with me, and we crushed it. It was just super fun. Vancouver is a very big, small city, 3.6 million people, 600,000 downtown. Out of that, who is going to find dining restaurants? I say it's like 5% of that. So I got to know everybody, all the chefs, et cetera, and brought my East Coast hospitality styles that my aunt had taught me to service. So people were like, I can't believe how nice that guy is. <laughs> I was like, I always learned from my family, the nicer you are, the more you get back. Therefore, the energy is reciprocal and you have a better time at life. Super simple shit that so many people don't think about. So when I was in service, I'm like, I got to be here 12 hours a day, six days a week. I'm going to make sure to have the best time ever using those hospitality chops that I had learned like from my family and that were just ingrained in me. So after two and a half years of that, I was battling addiction of alcohol and recreational narcotics, like having a, a bartender's life, if you will. Yeah. Um, but it affected me deeper because I have issues physically and mentally around addiction. And so it got the better of me, got through the gig, it was successful. And then I fell into a deep depression and ended a relationship and was just in a bad place. I uh, was sleeping on a couch at my best friend's apartment with his brother and his brother um, battled mental illness and drug addiction. So you can imagine the three of us in the 600 square foot apartment in the yeah. hood. And that like I bottomed out, you know, I was just drinking heavier and doing more drugs. And then at one point had interventions from a couple of my friends, not like actual sit you around the table, but just deep conversations about this is not your station in life. You're meant to be doing something bigger. Why are you here? What are you doing? And to be completely frank, I thought about taking my life multiple times in that period. I was like, I don't know if I can be the person I want to be. And I don't, I'm not enough. And I'm an imposter. And I was like, I'm not really this. You know, I'm, I can learn things, but I'm not really that. And so I had this huge battle mentally about, can I get out of this or not? And at that time, I had been speaking with a bunch of dudes who were really talented in their own field. One was sommelier, one was the best general manager I'd ever worked with, and one of my mentors, and one was a protege chef. And we had said, we should start our own place because that's what every single person who works in a restaurant <laughs> says. And Dreams of the day. Right? Yeah. And so I called, uh, I called everybody's bluff. It was like, let's find a space and let's do it. So I went back to where I had arrived to that same neighborhood, found us a space. It was the second oldest building that still stands up in Vancouver. It was the corner of Cordova and Carroll Street, the original center of the city, the planning point. It's a beautiful place called the Boulder Hotel originally. It was a bank, all these things. It had been five failed restaurants back to back to back to back to back. Wow. It was cursed, completely cursed. The neighborhood was, for all intents and purposes, dead. There's a couple weekend warrior bars there. Nothing was happening. There was that a was t-shirt. That was the place, shop. hey? Like, let's do this. Fast forward. So, Amazing. Yeah, we opened that year. Um, we named the restaurant after my mom, Benita. It's just here on my neck. Nice. It's a casual fine dining place. 
Uh, we were one of the most award-winning restaurants in Canada that year. I remember taking the stage. We won Best Design, which was adorable because we didn't have any designers. We designed it. Like One of the guy's wives was an artist. We did all of the work. And the runner-up um, was a chain from Canada. Mm-hmm. And I knew the owner. And when I took the award on stage, I was like, just so we're all aware, our restaurant costs less than the carpet <laughs> of the runner-up here. So that cracked something in me. I was like, we can literally do anything if we have the right passion, the right people around us, and the real people. Like the people in the community that don't feel like they belong, they have the most energy for this. They have the most passion for this. What I realized throughout life is all the cool kids are faking it. They're faking it. Like when you sit down and have a hard, real conversation with somebody who's there, they break down to like, shit, I'm an imposter as well, right? So authenticity breeds success. When people be like, what's the key to your success? Because we went from that into like nine businesses in five years. Yeah. It's been an unbelievable growth. Zero investment. Zero investors. Credit card debt, sweat equity, friends, leverage, good deals, like working every angle of the system. And it was just around good people doing great things. And that's how we built it. I wanted to ask you about that because one of the things that really struck me reading about your businesses was your really... Well, a couple of things. Firstly... You know, you've you've taken the approach and, and driven some really different models, like the token that you've created, which I think more than a hundred thousand people have been fed without a you know a dollar needing to change hands, helping feed people that wouldn't otherwise be able to feed themselves. And also, I was really struck by the fact that you'd employed so intentionally so many people from marginalised groups, which is often the category of workers that everyone goes no too hard. Um, and yet, you've seen unbelievable loyalty and return, not to mention the immeasurable benefit it's brought to your culture. Can you talk to us about those choices? It would be an honor. You guys can't see me at home, but I'm nodding like a bobblehead on the dash of a (laughs) a car on a bumpy road right now. The token project was born out of exactly, it's a design challenge, right? And so let's just take it there for a second. Before I understood what design thinking was, which Mm -hmm. I now teach, I was doing it. We're all doing it. We look at a problem. We have empathy. We say, hey, how can we design for this challenge? It's white space. You go into a restaurant, there's no sushi restaurant, a neighborhood. There's no sushi restaurant. You build one, right? That's the the low-hanging fruit. I got asked to sit in a meeting around an informal currency, a gift card that was being built for the downtown east side uh, by a group. And they'd been working on it for two years. And I sat down and they were like, hey, we're really happy you're here. You've been in this neighborhood for six years. We've got this project. We'd like you to be involved as a vendor. I said, okay, what does it entail? And they said, well, these cards are going to have a value of $20 or $50, and we're going to hand them out to people who are homeless. We're going to crowdsource the fund for them. And then they're going to use those to purchase food or clothing and vendors that are willing to go. And I said, okay, they're going to have a value on the front? I said, yes. Like, all right, well, every Christmas, companies come down here with stacks of gift cards to McDonald's or Starbucks, and they have $20 on them, and they hand them out, and they pat themselves on the back, and they go home. When they do that, every single person they hand them to who looks afflicted or addicted, transfers them for either $5 of crack cocaine, methamphetamines, heroin, or something else they really need. But it's not going towards, thank God, a McDonald's sandwich or to a Starbucks coffee. And they were like, no way. Like, have you done any research? Did you like step into an alleyway? They try to sell them back to me for $10 the next day. It doesn't work. No, nobody gets fed. So you want to feed people. This model doesn't work. And they were livid. I bet. Two years of research. <laughs> no research. Two years of planning out of, years a, of planning. a false assumption. Good call. Yep. Don't make stupid assumptions and not test them. Find well, talk out. Talk to the people you're trying to serve, right? So they're mad. They think they're mad. I'm furious. I go home. I'm flipping out. 
pour myself like four fingers of whiskey and go to bed. I wake up at three in the morning and I literally had a lightning bolt dream. And I was like, why don't we just take the value out of the system? Let's take the money out of it. Let's create something that is valueless-ish in comparison, and then everybody can use it. And so I texted the designer I was working with at the time. I was like, I need you to design me a poker chip. On one side, it has to have the pig. We have a three-story neon sign that has two big pigs on it. Everybody knows we've been there since 1957. And on the flip side, it needs to say sandwich. And he was like, cool, yeah, no problem. I'll make that. A week later, we had 2,000 of them printed. We sold them for $2.25. And somebody could come in any time of the day or night and redeem them for a sandwich. That's fun. The real point was people who wanted to get involved always said to me, I don't trust people who are marginalized with money because I'm scared they'll use it for drugs or alcohol. That bias sucks, but it's a real bias. So ignoring it and pretending it doesn't exist is stupid. To say that one of the largest open-air drug markets in the world doesn't have a drug market is insane. Mm. So of course people have that fear. So if they could use something that's a closed currency to know that somebody will genuinely buy a meal, why wouldn't they? And so I wanted to test it. I thought we'd do two or three a day. The first day we did 120 redemptions, which is 240 people involved in 120 conversations between somebody who has and somebody who has not. That was the point. The point was engage with another human, understand the struggle they're going through, and try and figure out how you can help. We're at 106,000 redemptions in Vancouver. We launched wow. in San Francisco. Two programs in Nova Scotia, Buffalo. We're working on Montana. Unreal. But simple. Dead, dead simple. The problem was the design challenge should have been how do we create conversation between two different types of folks who want to know each other and want to help? That's it. That was the design challenge. So that program has been tremendously successful. And out of the token program, we obviously needed more jobs filled. And so we looked directly. I was like, what's a 360 approach to this? So we hired people who are facing traditional barriers to being employed. Now, our barrier employment model is exactly that. So it's people who have come out of recidivism, people who have come out of street entrenchment, people face, facing a developmental delay or developmental disability, people who have other issues, just like issue issues. Uh, and we work with a multitude of agencies. And when we started to employ people who had these issues, our longest standing employees, three people have developmental disability, longer than my managing director. They've been with us seven years best people out, boss me around all the time, which I'm getting a little tired of, to be honest. <laughs> but they're not at all. They're the best. So these folks come into work in our business, and I start to attract something really quickly and realize nobody's ever sick. Nobody ever calls in with issues. Nobody ever complains. Nobody wants my job. They all really enjoy the position that they're in, learning short bursts, moving around a little bit, but not like crazy, like I need a raise of $30,000 this year. Those traditional things that we face as small business owners didn't exist with this population that we were serving. And then what I also started to see is the people who were working in my business traditionally were way more excited to come to work because they could see our purpose outside of the outside people we were serving. They could also see that we were serving people inside. So morale was at an all-time high. It's like, this is amazing. My turnover dropped through the floor. People who have disabilities, physical or mental, turn over at less than 30% per annum. Mine, less than seven. Wow. On a national scale, the service industry, and this is North America. This is thinking, hospitality is not known for a high retention rates. 75% or more per annum turnover. Wow. Yeah. And when you think about that, you're like, yeah, of course, it costs me around $2,000 to train an employee. 
if I'm a business of 50 people and 75% of them are leaving per annum and I have to spend $2,000, do the math. That's a renovation. That's a whole salary of an upward, like that's a CEO salary. And we don't have to do that. So when people are like, yeah, I really wanted to hire somebody who's struggling, but you know, I know it's going to be a pain in the ass. Like you, it's, you literally have it backwards. It's the opposite. Your business gets more stable. People are happier. You don't have to worry about it. Now, is this in every case? No, there's the odd case of people who freak out or there's problems or we've had deaths. Of course, we're dealing with the hardest margins. But for the most part, 99% of the time, best people who are in my employment. That's awesome. I wanted to ask you about that hardest part piece, you know, because you, you mentioned we we're having a chat yesterday around the drug challenges in the community that you work in. The fact that there are deaths occasionally on your, your premises that you, you mentioned yourself as well, that there's been real moments of struggle. And I'm interested for how, how you get yourself through, like what you do to be able to show up and give what you need to the incredible portfolio of things you're doing. And also how you keep the people that work with you and for you motivated and energized when you're tackling some really massive entrenched challenges. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a toolbox that I've sort of built that suits me, right? And suits the way that I operate. I think some of the tools are universal and one of them is meditation. And I don't mean sit at the top of a mountain, burn incense with finger symbols. I mean, like take eight fucking reciprocal breaths um, and chill out for a second and get grounded. Our bodies are built biometrically to calm us down. It's when we start to spin and do all the other stuff, pound booze, drink too much coffee, like all of this, <laughs> exercise too much, like that's what throws us off. And we only have two different cycles. One where we're spinning and we're out of control and the other one where we're in flow state. And to get into flow state, which I'm in right now with you, like I'm 100% present, there's nothing mm. else going on in my world. I'm with you, I'm for you. That's because before we did this, I got into a ritual of like doing some breathing, and then understanding that I also feel you're for me. And energetically, we're in this space, right? So I don't want to get too woo-woo about it. That's just <laughs> biometrics and human physiology. That's real shit. Now, the other part of that is doing something you deeply care about is the most centering thing in the world. Because no matter how hard it gets, and in the last two years, I can't count on all of my appendages how many people have died that I care about. Wow. Like it's, where's the guy who looked after the parking lot that I love? Rick, he's dead. Where is the flower lady? She's dead. Where is dead? Dead, 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 dead. Opioid epidemic is killing people left, right, and center. They have no self-control over this stuff. They're already in a place of malnourishment and mental illness. It's devastating. Now, the person who isn't dead is who I'm serving. And that's who I get up for. And I also get up for all the people who did die because I know exactly what they would want us to keep doing. It's not facetious. I know, I know because I've known them for 10 years before they passed or seven years or whatever that looks like. And how much honor they took in frequenting and being a patron of our place in the work that we do. I know that intrinsically. So why it's easier to get up is because I carry all of them with me and my whole team does. So just because somebody passes doesn't mean that you give up. You can't. You double down. You triple down. You say, this is going, we're going to end this. If you approach the work that we do and say, maybe, then get out of it. Like I, I wake up with the core belief, we will end homelessness. It's going to end. It has to end. And we know how to do it. We know the tools. We know the people who are there. We know the resources. We know how to change the system. We just need to hit this critical momentum and we're going to. Now, if I'm dead and gone in 15 years and we don't hit that, 
I'll know that I took every single breath of my life dedicated to that goal. And so when something happens, yeah, it makes me sad. Sometimes it's even devastating. Sometimes like it's uncontrollably sad, but you recenter and you get up and you do it all again. And that's, that's what passionate work is about. You mentioned there that, you know, we know how to tackle some of these problems. And I think I love that comment because I feel so often the conversation is we don't know how to tackle some of these problems. I'm interested in, you know, when, when you landed in that community and you were looking at the state of play and, and continually, you know, I know you're someone who's got ideas coming left, right and center all the time. How do you get yourself in the creative state to brainstorm the new ideas and the different approach that can actually have impact on the challenge you're trying to tackle? Greatest tool in the toolbox that everybody has at their disposal is free. It doesn't cost anything. You don't have to hire Deloitte. You don't need, you don't need anybody. All you need is you and your voice. Ask people. Ask them. When I sat in my restaurant. We had a sushi, sushi restaurant. And I had just thought, I assumed that it would be packed all the time. And I just didn't do the research, right? And so let's put that analogy aside because it's not a fun one. Last year, I spent 12 months in the Bay Area as a Civic Innovation Fellow of Stanford D School, right? And so what does that jargon mean? It means that I went to the design school in the center of Stanford that was created by David Kelly of IDEO to catalyze change of unlikely partners. Sometimes you see a Labrador and a kitten. It's kind of like that. It's like a neuroscientist and a guy who's an urban agrarian, right? Like how can they solve um, water issues? And so I got to put myself in that mind state for nine straight months. And in those nine straight months, what I decided to do was ask everybody everything. I'm stopping with assumptions. I'm not going to assume anything. Even when you start to read a bunch of articles and you're aggregating data and we're built that way, then we make assumptions and that's what keeps us alive, right? It's like, if all of these things are poisonous and I've read about them all the time, I'm going to stop doing ecstasy because there's too much fentanyl in it. Otherwise, I'll die, right? That's how we operate. Instead, the alternate way to go about things is to go out into a population that you're trying to serve and spend hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours and talk to people. What's your situation? What's your circumstance? How did you end up there? The platform I'm developing right now is called PAL or Positive Access Link. I've been building it for three years. In the prior three years, I'd probably done about 25 concepts. I've been working on one for three years because it's so fucking important that I need to know everything that I can about it. So when I say we can solve it, it's because I've done the research myself. I'm not asking agencies to share research with me. I'm not trusting any of the studies that are done. And I'll tell you why. So homeless populations in particular, and I'll give you one great example. And I was like, okay, what's the homeless number? And I said, I'll start with teens. And one agency said it's 38,312, something around that. The next agency said it's 1.7 million. Wow. The homeless count from the National Homeless Agency of America says there's 580,000 people homeless. None of that gels. And nobody seems to be concerned about it. Yeah. I'm like, yo, like if I said climate change is going to kill us all in 170 days or three hours or 40 days, we'd be concerned. We're in a global epidemic that is impacting literally every single thing we do. Poverty is the biggest epidemic that we are in. Seven out of 10 North Americans are one paycheck away from the street. We're literally at the cusp of this iceberg crashing into the Titanic, and nobody seems concerned. It's crazy to me. So I spent all of that time doing at least three or four or five a week ethnographic interviews. What's ethnography? 
you go in, you strip all of your bias out, you strip everything out. You are unidentifiable as a human to somebody, aside from the fact my guys was I'm a Stanford student. So got my ID in my bag that I still use from time to time. I put out, this is who I am. I'm not the guy who works on homelessness that feeds 1,200 people a day, that's created the token program, that's super polarizing. That's gone because I'm in the Mission District in Tenderloin. Nobody knows me. So I could sit with people and tell me about your experience for two hours. Put a recorder on the table and we would share space. So just like you and I are focused right now, same focus. But I, like you are holding space for me, wouldn't say anything. Tell me more about that. And then what happened? And people haven't been listened to, some of them in decades. I bet. And the shit that comes pouring out is data. What happened to you? So out of that, I created an experiment. I hate that word. Like it makes me shiver a little bit, but there's no other way to say it. And I got 18 people on the ladder of homelessness from direct street entrenched veterans to a man living with his two daughters in a van because his wife had recently died and he had lost his job at Google. Like heart crushing shit. 18 different people in that situation, living in shelter, living in single room occupancy hotel, actually in an apartment stable for the moment. And then I got six people from agency. What we never looked to was the agency and the, the experience that they're having. So I put those 24 people in a group and I convened them and I pulled out what looked like a Happy Meal box. It was white. And inside of it was a couple pairs of socks, a disposable camera, a waterproof pad, three waterproof pads, waterproof pens, a smartphone a data plan, and some Swedish fish or gummy bears, depending on which one you got. I presented this package and said, if you do this project with me for a week, I'll give you a $50 stipend, a gift card, to either Walgreens or Safeway. Closed currency, go get some groceries, go get some stuff you need. Not a lot of money. I'm asking people to participate for a week. The sign-up sheet on a side note was full, front, back, two pages, crazy. In Palo Alto one of the most privileged places in the entire world. Silicon Valley's cardiovascular center has homeless people throughout it. Yeah. You think the epidemic isn't anywhere. So I sat with the folks, I pulled the phone out and I said, okay, this is the first piece I've got for you. It's a cell phone. I've got a one month data plan on it for you. And they all sort of looked around. I was like, what? I can feel attention. What's the deal? And the woman in the front pulled out her phone. She's like, I have an iPhone five. I don't need that guy behind her was like, I have a Nexus, et cetera, et cetera. So that was the first assumption I was testing. I already knew it, but I had to test it in a research-based environment. Everybody has a smartphone. In America, if you make less than $15,000 a year, you prove it, and they give you a smartphone and a data plan. It's called Lifeline. You don't even have to pay for it. So multiple people in this test had like Ziploc bags full of phones because <laughs> there's 50 providers that do it. So everybody can have access to the technology. Technological equity already exists in that way. Everybody had a phone. And sent them out. And the project was, I'm going to send you a message three times a day and we're going to recreate your narrative as a human. I want to know what you are. You're not a homeless person. That's just that it's like I was carless at one point. That's insane. That's not who you are. Who are you? So the first question I sent out was, tell me about somebody who makes you proud and why. Take a picture. So these cameras were like selfie set up and turn around. And they're beautiful because they're real film cameras. The question I asked on the Thursday was, tell me about a skill you wish you could still use or you not a job you once had, not what somebody said you're good at, but a skill. And the first thing that came back to me was, I wish I was still a translator. Like, what does that mean? Long story very short, the woman named Jen graduated with her master's at USC in linguistics, wanted to be in the music business in the late 80s, early 90s. Got a job 
with Warner Music translating for international and European artists who were the sign of the times. Gets addicted to heroin, ends up in street prostitution for 13 years. Dad gets really sick, comes back to Palo Alto, where she's from, starts looking after her family and realizing she wants to change her life. So we say, great. How would you like to go about this? Do you need to retrain? She's like, oh, no, I have the skill. We work with her social worker. We do a postering campaign around Palo Alto. We find out the median price is $55 an hour. We charge $35, minimum engagement, 10 hours. The next week on a Thursday, she has a three-month contract, and she's making more than my stipend at Stanford. Wow. We just need to see people for who they are, and this is the platform that I'm building. I love that. Final question, because unfortunately, we were being pushed out of our speakeasy. I would love to know, for the people that are listening, if you could leave them with a, a call to action, what would it be? Stop being inspired. Inspiration is, is inspiration. It's like fairy dust. Everybody can be inspired. You can read a thousand books. Go do some shit. Go dig in. Take your genius. Like, don't come. When people say, I want to cook with you, I ask them if they know how to cook. They say no. I'm like, why would that be helpful? Do what you're amazing at. Share that gift with people who need you most. Stop reading the inspirational books. Stop going to the inspirational talks. You are inspiration. You are magic. You can do this shit. So you have to. That's how we heal all of it. If everybody heeds that advice, we're done. My job's over. I, I can love go, that. I can go sit my ties somewhere. Mark, it's been such a pleasure getting to talk with you. I feel like 10 feet tall. The amount of energy and enthusiasm and passion that you have for what you do is just insane. I'm so grateful for you sharing the story of what you've been through and, and what you've turned that into. And I look forward to continuing to follow it very closely because I know you're not even half done yet. We're just getting started. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organization, or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod, or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.